Good morning. Hey, let's um, just, I wanted, to, we're, we're, uh, we're getting ready to uh, start a series in the book of Revelation, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what part of that book we're going to cover. But let me, let me tell you this, let me tell you, um, just based on that song right there and what we just experienced, what you need to understand about the book of Revelation and what you need to understand about uh, what it says about Jesus is this. Jesus came the first time to earth. He came as a defenseless, helpless baby born in a manger in a little town in Bethlehem. But the book of Revelation tells us that Jesus is coming a second time. And when he comes a second time, he's coming riding a horse and carrying a, stone, uh, a sword. And he's coming to judge the earth. And there's going to be nothing helpless or defenseless about him. And people way outside of Bethlehem are going to know it. In fact, everyone's going to know it. And so I want you to understand that what we're talking about for the next few weeks, we're going to be, we're looking at one part of Revelation, but I want you to understand that it's a small part of a bigger story, which is this, that God is almighty, God knows what's going on here, and God will judge all of us one day for the sins we commit and the sins we don't commit, and our only hope is Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, we are thankful that you've given us a day and a place and an opportunity to to talk about and listen to and hear your word. And Father, I pray today that as we do that, that we would, uh, we would, we would be open to whatever it is you want to say to us. Your spirit, uh, we want your spirit to be here today, to be blowing out all of the, the garbage that's in our hearts and to be refilling us with, with grace and with mercy and with love. And Father, we know that, that one day we're all going to be judged and we understand, Father, those of us that have accepted Jesus, that our only hope in that day of judgment is that we can stand behind the cross and what you did on the cross for us and, and the victory that you had through the resurrection. And so, Lord, I ask today that if there's anybody here who, who does not, has not given themselves to you, who's, who's not standing behind the cross, that they would understand today their need for Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are starting a, a new series today of messages based on Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Now, now here's what you need to understand uh, about that is that w when I say we're starting a, a series of messages on the book of Revelation, if you've been in church or even if you've watched preachers on TV, maybe especially if you've watched preachers on TV, when you hear that I'm going to teach on Revelation, some of you get really excited and some of you get really scared. And it's for the same reason. Some of you get excited because you think, yes, we're going to talk about Revelation. Man, Cliff's going to tell us who the Antichrist is, and he's going to talk about when Jesus is coming back and how they're rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem so it's not going to be long. You, you think I'm going to be pulling out charts and stuff and all that stuff? Listen, what you need to understand about Jesus coming back is that, and by the way, May 2012, the Mayans said that and all that stuff. Don't worry about that. Acts 1-7 Jesus said this, it's not for you to know the days and the times the Father has set by his own authority. So what Jesus said was, the Mayans don't know when it's going to happen. So you can ignore all that stuff. I don't care how many movies they make about it. And in May 2012, I'm going to be sleeping good at my house. But here's the deal. Let's say, let's say May 2012 is it. Let's say Jesus says, I'm coming back. I'm going to let the Mayans be right. I don't think he's going to do that. But let's say he does. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have nothing to be afraid of. In fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's going to be the most awesome thing you've ever experienced. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you've got to get your stuff together before May of 2012. 
or before tomorrow because it could happen then. So when we talk about Revelation 2 and 3, I'm not going to be talking about who the Antichrist is. And I know some of y'all think y'all already know who it is and you think you know where he lives. <clears throat> Pretty sure you're wrong about that too. Uh, I'm not going to be talking about who the Antichrist is. I'm not going to be talking about when Jesus is going to be coming back because in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, what's going on there is that, that Jesus is dictating letters to seven of his churches. See, the book of Revelation was, was written by, and by the way, another just a little, just a little tip for you here, then um, this is the kind of stuff that you have to go to seminary to learn, so I'm going to just give it to you for free. Um, it's, it's revelation, not revelations, all right? It doesn't have an S on the end, and I know, I understand some, some of us, we put S on the end of Walmart, and, you know, we're going down to Walmarts and picking up some <laughs> underwears, you know, or whatever. Um, <clears throat> but it's, it's revelation with the N on the end, because the reason why is, is Jesus is called the revelation of Jesus Christ, and Jesus spoke this revelation directly to a guy named John. Now, John, you will remember if you've read any of the New Testament or if you've been in church very often, John was a guy, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the same John that wrote that as that wrote this book of Revelation. John is the brother of a guy named James, and him and his brother, they were followers of Jesus. They were two of the original 12 disciples. And in fact, John was, was really tight with Jesus. When you read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you read in the Gospels, you see a lot of times where Jesus would be doing things and then he would grab three of the guys separately, Peter, James, and John, and the three of them and Jesus would go and they would do some extended teaching and hanging out and that kind of stuff. That's who wrote the book of Revelation. And what happened to John was, is that after Jesus had, had ascended back into heaven, and, and all of his disciples were going around and they were doing what Jesus told them to do. They were preaching the gospel. They were starting churches. They were healing people. They were doing all this stuff. And because John was following Jesus and he was teaching the gospel, he got thrown in prison for that. And then, and then they, they decided that they didn't want to just leave him in a regular prison. So they actually sent John away to an island to live by himself. And so John is on this island, he's exiled on this island, he's not allowed to, to come or go, and, and he's there until he dies. And while he's on this island, all by himself, separated from the rest of the believers, Jesus chooses to come to him and to begin to reveal things to him that he had never revealed to anybody else. And John wrote all these things down, and that's what the book of Revelation is. And in, 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 uh, in chapter 1 of Revelation, Jesus says to him, listen, I want you to write down uh, these things to these seven lampstands, these golden lampstands. And what he meant by the lampstands is he was talking about seven of his churches. And that's what he called the churches were lampstands. And we'll talk in a minute about why he called them that. And so then he said there were seven stars and that was seven angels. And he said that each one of the churches had an angel, which to me is a pretty cool idea. I love the idea that, that there possibly is an angel in heaven assigned to Freedom Fellowship. We have an angel that, that Jesus is using to, to watch out for our church. I think that's pretty cool. And that's what it said, Jesus said to John that he had done there. Each one of these seven churches had an angel assigned to it. And so he said, I'm going to write these letters, and I'm going I'm to dictate these letters to you, John. I want you to write them down. And so what, we, what we're looking at is the words of Jesus to seven of his churches. Now, why is that important? Why is it important for us to look at, at what Jesus wrote to seven churches that were back, you know, a, a couple thousand years ago? Well, we know from reading the New Testament 
that Jesus established the church. He's the one that started the church. It was, it was his idea. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus uh, was talking to Peter, and Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus then said, and you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So he was establishing the church right there. Then we know from Ephesians 5, 23, and, and a lot of other places in Scripture that, that it says that Christ is the head of the church. So Jesus started the church, and he's also the head of the church. So if he has something to say to his churches, it, it stands to reason that we ought to pay attention to what that is. It'd be like if you, um, if you worked at Chick-fil-A up here in Greer and, and uh, you worked there and, and you've got your boss there and you listen to, it's Mr. Tyler, I think is the, Bill Tyler is the boss up there and you listen to what he says. But then one day out of the blue, Truett Cathy walks into Chick-fil-A. Now he's the guy who started Chick-fil-A. And he, is he still alive, by the way? Because if he walked in and he was dead, that would really be something. That would really be like Jesus too, but I don't think... Okay, so he's still alive. So let's say Truett Cathy comes, just shows up one day from wherever he's from, and he decides we're going to visit the, the Chick-fil-A in Greer. And Truett Cathy comes in, and you're working there, and you know, you're back in the back dropping the waffle fly, fries into the grease and doing whatever it is you've got to do. And Truett Cathy comes back there, and he begins to talk to you, and he begins to tell you to do something. Now, do you think, as an employee of Chick-fil-A, you're going to pay extra close attention to what Truett Cathy has to say? I guarantee you you are. Because not only is he, is he your boss, he's also the founder of Chick-fil-A and he's also the owner of Chick-fil-A. Well, Jesus is the founder, the owner, and the boss of his church. Jesus is the founder, the owner, and the boss of the seven churches that he wrote letters to in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And Jesus is the founder, the owner, and the boss of this church. I'm not the boss of this church. We're having an elders meeting this afternoon. We've got great elders, but they're not the boss of this church. Jesus is the boss of this church. He's also the founder of this church. He's also the owner of this church. And so when he has something to say to one of his churches, we need to, we need to uh, get our ears ready to hear what it is, and then we need to obey what he says. So, so let's read what Jesus had to say in Revelation chapter 2, we're going to start there. Revelation is the very last book of the Bible, so it's pretty easy to find. Revelation chapter 2, and I'm going to start by reading the first three verses of Revelation chapter 2. It says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now before I go any further... Ephesus is the same Ephesus where if you read the New Testament, there's a book in the New Testament called Ephesians. The people who lived in Ephesus were known as the Ephesians, just like the people who live in Greer are known as the Greerisans. I don't know, we don't have a word for people who live in Greer, do we? Or Taylorsites or whatever. Um, but if you live in Pickens, you're known as a redneck. I'll just go and throw that out there. <laughs> So, the, so that's, who the, that's who this church is, uh, this, this letter is written to, the same church that Paul started back in Acts. And uh, back in Acts 19, I believe it is, it talks about Paul went to Ephesus and he preached there and started a church there. And so this is the same church that Paul started way back then that Jesus is writing this letter to. And then verse 2, it says this, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are, but are not and have found them false. You have persevered 
and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Something that I think we can learn out of this letter that Jesus has written to this church, and especially in these two verses, is this, and that is that obedience is good. Obedience is good. See, the, 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 the city of Ephesus, it was, a, uh, it was a pretty big deal back then. Uh, it was a very busy city. It was a very important city. Uh, it was a city of, any, most people think, anywhere from a quarter of a million to a half million people living there. So it was, for that day and, and time, it was a, a very big uh, place. It was, it was a place where there was a lot of trade going on. But what you need to understand about Ephesians and, and why these two verses, uh, uh, Ephesus, and why these two verses uh, are important, what Jesus was saying here is that before Paul started that church in Ephesus those years ago, back in Acts 19, before that church was started, Ephesus was a completely pagan city. And what I mean by a pagan city was, is that it wasn't that they just didn't believe in God, but they worshipped a false god. Ephesus was the same place where was located the Temple of Artemis, where maybe you've heard in your, your back when you can remember back in your history class, there were seven wonders of the world. And one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the Temple of Artemis that was located in Ephesus. And so the people there were completely and totally dedicated to the worship of this Greek false god, and, and that worship of that god involved all kinds of things that go completely against scripture, things like sorcery and things like temple prostitution and stuff like that. And so that was the environment that, that this church was started in. And so what Jesus is saying there to them is he's saying, listen, you've been working hard, you've been obedient to me in the middle of, of this place. And it'd be kind of like, uh, like the difference between living in uh, London or versus Afghanistan. I don't know if you know this or not, but, but in London now, there's basically no thriving churches left. I mean, there are a few, but, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a city where, where people aren't, um, they're not anti-Christianity, but they're pretty apathetic to it. If you want to serve Jesus, that's fine, but we're not going to be excited about it. And, and you think that might be a hard place to live for Jesus. But think about if you lived in Afghanistan where 99% of the people there are completely committed to the Muslim faith. Now that's a different deal because there if you try to live for Jesus, you're going to meet all kinds of resistance. So where this church was started wasn't in a place where people were apathetic to religion. It was a place where people already had their own false religion. And so when they were trying to serve, it was a difficult place to serve Jesus. And so when Jesus says to them there in verse 2, when he says, listen, I know your, your deeds, I know your hard work and your perseverance, he's saying, this is a tough place to be and you've been at it for a long time. You've been serving me and this is a good thing what you've done. The word there that's used for hard work is a Greek word that, that means it's all you can give. It's not just a little bit of work. It, this is work that it takes all the effort you've got, the absolute best you can give. And Jesus says, you've been giving that. You've been giving hard work. You've been doing all that you can for a long time. And when he talks about being per, uh, persevering and your perseverance, he's talking about them being faithful for a long period of time. And then in verse 2, he also says, and I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. The other thing that the church at Ephesus had to deal with a lot of times that thankfully we don't have to deal with here or haven't had to deal with here very much is that they would have people come into the church and they would begin to teach things that were in direct opposition to what the Scripture said. 
And they would begin to say, no, no, what they're saying isn't right. This is what it really says. And so what Jesus says to them, listen, when those guys came in, y'all have done a good job. You know your theology. You know what the Scripture says and what the Scripture doesn't say. And so when those people have come in here and tried to teach something that's false, you've tested them and you've gotten rid of them. You've gotten that bad teaching out of your church. And Jesus said, I commend you for that. That's a good thing. And let me just make a side note here and ask you a question just before we go any further. And this is just a challenge to you, and this is not what the whole message is about. Could the same thing be said about you as far as your theology? If Do you listen to what I say up here every week, and you just take that as the gospel truth because I said it? And Cliff, you know, Cliff's a pretty good guy, so I know he must be right. I don't want you to put that much trust in me, is what I'm telling you. What I want you to do is I want you to read the Scripture for yourself so that you know... Now, I pray, I, I pray all the time that, that God would allow me to teach what he wants me to teach. But I want you to be ready in case I go all Jim Jones or, you know, David Koresh on you. And I stand up here one week and I say, hey, I'm the Savior and bring your wives to me or anything like that. You need to be ready for that. I don't think that's going to happen. But what I'm saying to you is, is that I want, I want you to be like what Jesus says to this church. Hey, you know enough about the Scripture you know enough about theology that you can test the teaching of the people that are standing up and teaching you. And you can tell if it's correct or if it's incorrect. And by the way, Donnie's not going to go David Koresh on you either. We've been talking about this. No, we haven't, but we don't expect that to happen. And then the other thing that Jesus says to him that, that lets us know that he was telling them, listen, you've done a good job. You're obeying and obedience is good, is in verse 3 when he says this. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. They didn't give in to negativity. They didn't, they didn't give in to disappointment. They, they were still, in, in the fact that they were living in a, in a pagan city, that they were having to constantly fight against that that they had not grown weary. They were still working hard. And Jesus is saying to them, your obedience is good. What you've done here so far is, is good. I'm proud of what's going on here. And, and, and what that says to me is, you know, when I hear about that church, man, that to me sounds like a church I'd want to be a part of. I'd want to be a part of a church that, that in the midst of everything else going crazy around them, they're still committed to the gospel they're still working hard, that it's been going on for a long time, and they're still hard at it. That sounds to me like a church I'd want to be a part of. And then we get to verse 4. And so Jesus said all this good stuff to him in 2 and 3, and then we get to verse 4, and he says this, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. Obedience is good, but passionate obedience is best. Obedience is good, but passionate obedience is best. See, this, this letter that, that Jesus dictated to John and John wrote down when he was on this island, this letter was written about 40 years after the church had been started. So, so Acts 119, when Paul started the church, to this date when this letter was, was written, it's been 40 years. Now think about what happens in a span of 40 years. 40 years ago was 1972. Some of y'all weren't even thought about yet in 1972. And some of y'all had an afro and bell bottoms and big platform shoes in 1972. 1972, I was riding a tricycle and just learning how to use my big boy pants. That's where I was in 1972. 
I mean, 40 years is a long time, isn't it? That's a long time. And so in the 40 years since this church had been started till today, that something had happened in the church that, that happens to a lot of churches. Something had happened in the, in the lives of these believers that happen, happens to a lot of believers. They were still doing what they thought they were supposed to do. They were still serving. They hadn't turned their back on the church. They hadn't turned their back on Jesus. But their service to Christ, their, 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 uh, their, what they were trying to do for Him, it had become mechanical. There was no passion in it anymore. There was no joy in it anymore. And it kind of become like, oh, good night, i got to go teach the five-year-old class again. I've been teaching this class forever. I wish somebody else would volunteer to teach the five-year-old class so I could go into worship service and hear the band or whatever, you know. Or, or it was, i got to get up and set up this stupid sound equipment again and put up these screens. I've been doing this for seven years or whatever it was. So that's kind of, the, that's kind of what happened, and that can happen to all of us. And so over the time, over the 40 years, they were still, still doing some things. But, but what had happened was what used to be seen as an opportunity to serve was now seen as a chore. It used to be an opportunity. This was something I was excited to do. Man, I can be, I can be used and be a part of God's work. I can, be, I can be a part of expanding the kingdom and helping people get saved. And now it's like, ah, i got to do this again? Are you serious? And so they were still serving and Jesus said, hey, you've done good. You're still working, and I'm proud of you for that. But your passion's gone. Your joy is gone. Your excitement is gone. It's kind of like, I don't know how many of you have raised kids or are raising kids, but you remember when you had a, a little kid that was about four years old and you would ask them to help you do something? And they would drop whatever it is that's going on. My kids, I don't know if they would, they would almost drop a Christmas present when they were that age if dad said, hey, I need your help because they wanted to help daddy. And that's the way it is when you're a little kid. Then when they get to be a teenager, parents, and they're 17, 16, 18, however old. And by the way, if you're 18 and still living at home, your parents can still ask you to do something because you ain't paying your bills yet, all right? So don't act like just because you're 18. But, uh, but, you know, when they get to be a teenager and you ask them to do something, then what kind of reaction do you get sometimes? Well, then the reaction is a little different. They might still do it. They, they might not walk away from you. They might not reject you as a parent, but they do it. But they, but they do it just to get it done. There's no excitement there. There's no joy there. And that's kind of what happens to us as followers of Jesus. And that's what happened to this church. There was a time when this church, man, they, they were right next door to the temple of Artemis and there was temple prostitution going on and sorcery going on and all, all this stuff and they said, man, we don't care about that. We're here to serve Jesus and we're excited about this and we're going to do whatever it takes. And then 40 years later, well, we're still here working but it sure is hard and I'm not really excited about it that much anymore. And we've had a lot of people come and go and I'm kind of aggravated at them and it's just not like it used to be. And I remember when we started this church back when Paul was here. Man, if Paul was still here and the pastor, things would be different. But now it's just hard. Because they had forsaken their first love. Now, who is their first love? What is Jesus talking about there? He's talking about himself. He's saying, churches were established. I started this church because it's about me. That's what Jesus was saying. Jesus said, it was all about me. Remember, I established the church. I own the church. I'm the boss of the church. It's about who I am and helping people understand me. 
And somewhere along the line, in trying to do all these things, you're still doing them, but you've forgotten me. And see, what we, what we see is, as uh, just you know, the word forsaken there, we see as kind of a turning away. You need to understand that Jesus sees that as a divorce. That word there in verse 4 that says, you have forsaken your first love, that is the exact same Greek word that was used in legal documents of that day when a husband was divorcing his wife. That's the same word that was used. So what Jesus is saying here is, even though you're still doing all this stuff, you've divorced yourself from me. Your service is empty because you're not doing it for me anymore. Your good deeds are worthless because they're not about me and they're not what I've called you to do. And here's the thing about when you serve Jesus over a long period of time like these folks had done. When you begin to move away from who Jesus is, you begin to forsake your first love, it happens slowly. I, I really doubt that the church at Ephesus, that one day that the leadership of that church woke up and they said, you know what? We're going to abandon Jesus. We're not going to love him like we used to, but we're still going to keep doing all this stuff. No, it happens slowly. I don't know how many of you have spent any time at all in a boat, whether you've been fishing or just out on the lake at 4th of July or whatever. But you know, if you're, if you're in a boat and, and you're cruising and you've got your motor on and then Let's say you see a place you want to fish and it looks like that would be a good spot over there. So you cut your motor off and you don't turn on any other kind of motor and you just sit there. How long are you going to stay in the same place? It's not, you're not going to stay in the same place very long because you're going to begin to drift. Whether there's wind or no wind, you're still going to drift. Sometimes you drift faster if there's wind. But even if there's not any wind, you're never going to stay in exactly the same spot unless you drop some anchors or do something to make yourself stay in that same spot. It's natural for a boat to drift. It's natural for us as followers of Jesus to drift away from Him. That's natural. That's If we don't make any effort to, to build that first love, if we don't make any effort to, to stay close to Christ, we are naturally going to drift away. If you believe that, you know what, Cliff, man, I went to vacation Bible school when I was nine, and the dude at the last night, he gave an invitation, and I walked down this aisle, and they sang All Were Christian Soldiers, and I cried, and they baptized me, and that's all I've done with Jesus since then, so I'm as, just as close as him today as I was then, and I will tell you, you're crazy. Because if that's all you did, what happened that day is you were close to Jesus and He saved you and you felt that emotion and you were right there with Him. But ever since that day, if you've done nothing else, you have begun to drift a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further because we have a sin nature that still lives in us even while we're on this earth. And it pulls us away from who He is. And so what happened was with this church is they had slowly drifted probably weren't even aware of it. They, they probably didn't even realize what was going on. So what do we do if we're in that situation? What do, what do you do if, if you would admit today, you know what, Cliff, there was a time when I was a lot closer to Jesus than I am now, but I've, I think I've slowly drifted. I think I've moved away from him. I've forsaken my first love. Well, look what it says in verse 2-5. Jesus tells the church what to do. Remember the height from which you have fallen. 
Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. A couple things Jesus says to do. First one is remember. Remember. Now, we're not talking about living in the past. We're we're not talking about, you know, thinking, oh, I wish every day could be like the day I got baptized, because that's not realistic. But what Jesus said there to them is, just take a moment and look back. Look back at, at how how close you used to be to Christ. Take a moment and look back at how passionate you used to be for the Word of God. Take just a little bit of time and and just just remember what that was like. Remember and look back at what that passion for Him felt like, looked like, sounded like. And then the second thing He says is repent and return. Repent and return. He says repent and do the things you did at first. Return to the old things that you used to do. See, if you, um, if, if Sherry and I, if we have an argument, and let's say I do something really stupid, just let your mind wander. There's a million choices, knowing me, that, of what that could be. But let's say I do something really stupid. And let's say it's something that creates a real problem. And, and when I realize how stupid I've been, if I just go to her, and I say, hey, baby, I'm sorry. You know me. You know how sorry I am. And she says, yeah, you are pretty sorry. No, she wouldn't say that. <laughs> you know me. You know how sorry I am. I'm just really, really sorry. But in the meantime, whatever the situation is that I've messed up, I've done nothing to correct it. And it just sits over here. How sorry is she going to think that I really am? It's not, she's going to think, okay, that's great. I'm glad you're sorry. Now go fix that stupid mess that you made because I don't know how to fix it and I don't want to fix it or whatever it might be. When, when Jesus says, remember the height from which you were fallen and then repent and return and do the things you did at first, repentance doesn't just mean saying you're sorry. Hey, Jesus, Cliff said that I've probably drifted away from you. Sorry about that. Hope we're cool. I'm going to go back to school or work in the morning. That's not the way that works. Repentance doesn't just mean saying you're sorry. Repentance is an action. Repenting means you turn from what you were doing and you turn and you begin to take on a new way of life. And so he says, repent from that stuff and come back to me. And and what he says, one of the ways to do that is return and do the things you used to do. If there was a time in your life when you were close to Jesus and the reason you were close is because you were reading the scripture every day, if that was good for you, go back and read the scripture every day again. If there was a time in your life when when you spent a week every summer and whether it was going to camp or whether it was going on vacation or whatever and you just got away and you unplugged from everything and and you just tried to concentrate on who he was and what what he wanted you to know, then find a way to do that again. Go back to that. Repent and return. Go back to the things that you did at first. And then there's, and and now listen, let let me just warn us all about something here. Remember that the church at Ephesus was busy doing stuff. So it's not just about doing stuff. What I'm telling you, I'm not telling you, hey, you can work your way out of this situation. The church at Ephesus was working hard. They were doing all kind of stuff. 
But what Jesus said to them was, listen, y'all are just doing it because I told you to do it a long time ago and you've lost your passion. What I'm saying is, is that we need to discover and we need to pray and we need to ask Jesus, Jesus, I want to do the things you want to do and I want to do it because of who you are. Out of a love that I have for you. I don't teach the five-year-olds because I don't want to disappoint Cliff if I don't. I teach the five-year-olds because Jesus has called me to do it. And I really believe that me telling them about the gospel is going to make a difference in the world. I don't play in the band just because Chris asked me to and put me on the schedule. But I do that because I really believe that leading people in worship is important. And I'm doing it out of a love for Jesus because you died for me. And I want to give back part of what I can do to you. And you've blessed me with the ability to play this instrument. And so I'm going to do that for you. Whatever it is, whatever your area of service is, greeting people at the door. Smile at them and greet them, not because we've told you to, but because Jesus has done something for you and you've got a joy in your heart and you want to tell people who come in this door about it, whatever the area is. And then there's a warning that Jesus gives in verse 5 at the end. He says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. There's a lot of different ways you can interpret that or what that might mean. But the thing that, that keeps me up at night sometimes is that what I desire for this church, I desire for this church to be influential, to have influence in this community. And when I say that, I don't mean getting somebody elected or making sure things happen the way we want them to happen. But what I mean is making an influence for the kingdom of God. Being influential in the lives of people who need Jesus. And what Jesus says there is, listen, if you've lost your passion for me, if you've forsaken your first love, I'm giving you an opportunity to go back to that, to repent and go back. And if you don't do it, one day I'm taking the lampstand. Why did Jesus call his church as a lampstand? What, is Jesus, what did he say in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, when he said, uh, you are the what of the world? Say it out loud if you know it. Light. Jesus said to his followers, you are the light of the world. And go out into the world and do good deeds and that people will see your good deeds and give praise to your Father in heaven. And so what Jesus is saying here is, you have a... You're a church, you're a lampstand. You're not just a light, but you're a light that's been put up on a stand for everybody to see. And if you don't get back to me, Jesus said, if you don't come back to me, if you forsake me as your first love, then one day I will remove that lampstand. You will have no more influence and the church will no longer exist. And my prayer for this church is that we would be so close to Jesus me as, me as the pastor, our staff, our elders, all of our volunteers, that we would be so close to who Jesus is that when we go out into this community, our lamp is burning brightly. That when, we, when we're the big lamp on a lampstand up here and we're burning brightly for people to see and then when we leave and we get off the stand and we become a bunch of little lights that go out into this community, that we would be so close to him that we would have influence on the places we work and the places we live and the places we go to school and the places we buy our things at, that we would be influential in those places. But that only happens when we 
are close to our first love and we haven't forsaken him. We're going to have a little time um, for you to respond and, and uh, Sherry's going to come up here and play. And um, I just, I just want to ask you and challenge you and where's your passion today? Are you, are you more passionate about your business than you are of Jesus? Are you more passionate about a, a ball game than you are Jesus? Are you more passionate about a hobby, music, or golf, or shopping, or whatever it would be? Are you more passionate about those things than you are Jesus? If you would be honest, would you say, you know what? I've drifted. I've forsaken him in certain areas. Were you, were you closer to Jesus three years ago, three months ago, or three weeks ago than you are now? And I'm not talking about, I know that we have good days and bad days. I'm not talking about a day where you just felt negative and you, you know, didn't want to talk to anybody. I'm talking about you, you know where you are with Jesus. You realize either, yeah, I'm passionate, I'm fired up about who he is. I, I want to serve him whether that be here or Africa or China or California, I want to serve him. Or would you say, I'm kind of going through the motions. And so we're going to have a time for you to, to respond and I want you to come forward and pray and uh, tell him about that. And uh, maybe you're here today and you would say, I've never been close to Jesus because I've never really known him. And I want to tell you that you can come today and you can change all of that. Our, our guys, we're going to have some of our guys stand down here and um, they're going to be ready to talk to you about that. And don't wait until you think you got it all figured out. If you've got a question today, today's the day. So I want you to stand up. Sherry's going to pl play. I'm going to pray for us. When I'm done praying, you have an opportunity to respond. And um, when I'm done praying, I don't, I don't want to be like a preacher begging you to make some kind of decision, but I just want to say this. Um, only you know where you stand in relation to your first love. Only you know where you stand in relation to Jesus. And don't tell him no. Do whatever he wants you to do. Let's pray. God, you are a good God, a kind God, a holy God, and a just God who judges sin. And Lord, I stand before you a sinner. And my only hope is that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me. I can't be good enough. I can't teach the Bible enough. I can't read it enough, memorize it enough to be good enough for you. So Lord, I pray that you give me more and more of Jesus. That's, that's all I ask for. And Father, for the people here today, I pray that they would understand that they can't be good enough that all they need is you. And if we, any of us, myself included, 
if we have drifted from you, if we have forsaken you as our first love, I pray that we would take care of that and we would make a move towards you today. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You come forward. Our guys are going to stand down here at the front.